The Bible is an amazing treasure. An anonymous author once wrote this about the Bible. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, its decisions immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Christ is its subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is given to you in life. It will be open in the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its holy precepts. I don't know who wrote that. Nobody does. He wished to be anonymous, but the truths that are there is a very good summary of the, of the treasure that is the Bible. And, and we approach the Bible as a single divinely inspired book because there's one Uh, supernatural author, the Holy Spirit of God. But it's full of very uh, different genres. A scriptural song is a different genre, for instance, than an epistle like uh, the Ephesians or a narrative like the the Gospel of Luke, and then you you interpret those genres accordingly. Uh, For instance, if you were to read a story about history, say World War II, you don't read it to replicate everything that, that you read. I mean, I'm sure there's lessons that you can learn, but that's not the purpose of a, of a history writing. The purpose is to accurately tell you what happened in the, in the past. But if you receive an email or a letter from your boss giving you instructions about what to do while he has gone on vacation next week, that, that's different. That is the purpose. Uh, it's a different genre. It's a, type, a different type of writing. It's to give you instructions to follow and prescriptions or to, to prescribe certain actions for, for you to take. Well, the Bible works in the same way. God wrote parts of the Scripture as history to accurately tell you what happened, like the book of Genesis or the Gospel of Luke that we normally read during this time of the year. God wrote letters to give you instructions like Philippians or, or Ephesians to prescribe certain actions for you to take. And he also wrote biblical songs for us to sing. And that's what we're looking at over the next several weeks. We're picking up our biblical hymnals to expositionally sing the Psalms of Christmas. And the Psalms, the book of Psalms, are, are God's inspired hymn book. All are written in the Old Testament and many are fulfilled in the, in the new. And last week, we said you might think of interpreting the Psalms as we approach these, these songs of the Bible. You might think of it as the way a music teacher approaches their subject matter. A biology teacher dissects their subject and analyzes its details. A music teacher does something a little bit different. Music teacher teaches the meaning of the lyrics, but they also teach the tune of the song, and they inspire you to sing it. 
So as we look at the biblical Psalms, the English theologian said, our task is to, is to get it, is to feel it, and to want to sing it. And that should be much easier with the one that we have before us this morning. I mean, last week we sang a, 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 sang a song of lament about uh, waiting for the Lord to come. And the enemies of God had invaded Jerusalem. They, they captured all the people and they burnt the city to the ground. And, and as you waited as a Jew for the Messiah to come and reign, you, you probably would sing Psalm 74. Well, today we're going to look at a song that we will sing when the Lord comes to do that very thing, and it is Psalm 98. Psalm 74 was full of anticipation for something better when things were really, really bad, and it was expressed in prayer and and lament, but Psalm 98 is also full of anticipation when things are really good or will be really good, and it's expressed in praise and, and rejoicing. If Psalm 74 was in a minor key, then this one surely is starts in, in a major. The psalm is actually, this Psalm 98 is actually the origin of the Christian hymn, Joy to the World, that we sang to, to open. Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts, published in 1719. But did you know that Isaac Watts wrote it not for Christmas? The song says, Joy to the Lord, uh, the world, the Lord has come. And what he means by that is he's come to reign, and that's what Psalm 98 is all about. The earth receives her king. Bethlehem doesn't receive a, a baby. And so the song points uh, more to the second coming of Christ than it does the, the, the first one. And we sing it at Christmas because the promise of Christ's first coming in the Old Testament will ultimately be fulfilled in His second coming promised in the New Testament. And so the incarnation of the Savior gives way to the revelation of the, of the King. Now let me show you how Psalm 98 is broken down. It, it has three parts to it, and they each build on each other. So the choir starts the psalm made up of God's covenant people who, who praise Him for, for what He's done to save them in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Bill Barrett called verses 1 through 3 a song of salvation. But notice there's a change, if you would, in verse 4. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. So here, in verses 4 through 6, there are shouts of coronation. The nations of the earth join the song with instruments of worship, praising its king who's reigning. So that's the second part. So verses 1 through 3, God's people. Verses 4 through 6, the nations bring about their instruments of worship. And then verse 7, notice there's a change in verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that contains it. And rivers are clapping hands and mountains are, are singing. Now there's sounds of celebration. There's this other addition. So all of nature completes the ensemble by providing the background melody to the Lord as He comes to, to judge. And so you have a song of wonder-filled believers. You have an orchestra played by joyful nations and an accompaniment from liberated nature, or as Watts wrote, let heaven and nature sing. This is a song that Israel sang in the past, and we will all sing it in the future 
when the Lord reigns. And so we will call this three members of the Lord's coming ensemble. There's three parts. There is a song, Wonder-Filled Believers Sing, in verses 1 through 3. It's the bulk of it. An orchestra, Joyful Nations Play, and then an accompaniment, Liberated Nature Provides. Let's let's look at the, the first one here. There's a song, Wonder-Filled Believers Sing. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It begins with the command. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And so you have a command, and the, the people that are supposed to sing are, are listed. And then there's immediate, that's immediately followed by, by six reasons that we should sing. Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done, and then list six things that the Lord's done while they're singing. We should sing, the psalmist says, because of God's miracles, because of His victory, because of His salvation, because of His righteousness, and because of His faithfulness, and because of His revelation. This is not a psalm about worship. You'll find some of those. This is how you're supposed to worship. This is a song of worship. You can see that in its title. Look, if you would... At the title, probably right under Psalm 78, or if you have a study Bible, there's, there's some theme written there. That's not inspired, but it starts with a psalm that is inspired. Now, how would you like it if your song leader uh, said, open your hymnals and turn to a song? I mean, we, we would say, okay, which song? Well, that's exactly what this one says. It's a song. It's, it's, it's why it's called an orphan psalm. By, by the rabbis because of this heading. There's no author listed, and it just simply says a psalm. And it's the shortest introduction in the Psalter and the only place where this simple heading is used. But the singer's identity, the people singing this song, are unmistakably clear. It, it, it's believers. In verse 1, it says, Sing to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That, that's God's covenant name. It's the name that Israel used for the Lord. And then when you begin to look at the reasons that they're given to sing, these are all things that God did for Israel. He gives six specific reasons, starting with His wonderful deeds, His, his miracles. We sing because of His miracles. We would at verse 1, sing to the Lord, Lord a new song. For he has done wonderful things. Now the word wonderful means exactly what you would expect it to to mean. It it means something that fills you with wonder. Something that God did that fills you with wonder. It's the primary word for miracle in in the Old Testament. It's used first here in Exodus chapter 3. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. The writer means all the miraculous and astounding acts the Lord performed in front of his people, and it filled them with wonder. And so he's saying, sing, because of these things that you've seen. And there's surely a a lot of material that God's provided. I mean, there's no clearer time. It seems in the Old Testament, whenever God does wonder-filled things for Israel, then than in the Exodus, when he leads them out of, out of Egypt, which is what the writer's implying here. God performed amazing feats in Egypt for all to see. I mean, there was a river of blood and plagues and flies and destruction of cattle and, and power over nature and hail and, and, and storms. 
Did you know that's one of the reasons, the primary reasons, that Jesus performs public miracles during His time to, to prove, even miracles of our nature, to show that He is the God of the Old Testament. And the final miracle that the Lord performed, the final wonderful thing that He did in the Exodus was His absolute command over death itself. You remember the last plague? God showed that he had the power to take life and he had the power to preserve it. That's something that you probably want to remember, especially during a time like this when everybody's talking about death. The Lord has power over death and he has power to preserve life. I can remember a choir number that we used to sing when I first came to Christ that talked about the wonder-filled things that God did for, for the Old Testament saints. It was called Under the Blood, and I couldn't, I couldn't sing it without just, just having incredible praise in my heart because of what it said that God had done for me. And the second stanza said, The prophets of old lied the home shore. Their faith through the ages doth ring. They've waited so long for the moment, the crowning of Jesus the King. And, and here's the, the part. There's Daniel, Elijah, and Noah. They talk of the fire and the flood. So here's Daniel, Elijah, and Noah talking about the wonderful things, the miraculous things, how God delivered them in the Old Testament. There's Daniel, Elijah, and Noah. They talk of the fire and the flood. But if they ask how I made it, I'll tell them I came through the blood. And I tell you what, whenever I got to that point thinking about the wonder-filled things that God had done and how He delivered the Old Testament saints and what they have to boast about, and what I have to boast about, what I have to boast about is the only way I'm getting into heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. What wonder-filled thing has God done in your life? I mean, that's surely a reason to, to sing. I mean, as you look back over your life, can you think of some, some moment when the Lord left you in awe uh, over His intervention? I mean, there's no way that, that anyone or anything else other than the Lord, this, this was Him and Him alone. In my life, I can think of smaller things, like whenever the Lord provided uh, me a place to live and a job in order to go to seminary in the last hours of the last day, whenever I, I came to Lynchburg looking for one. Or big things, like when He saved me or when He saved my marriage. Whatever it is, it was the Lord's work, and He brought it to pass. And they're singing about that that here. And so he says, sing because of the Lord's miracles. He also says, sing because of the Lord's victory. Look if you would at verse 1 again. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. What wonderful things has the Lord done for you? How did he do those wonderful things? Well, he brought victory. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. So here's another reason to sing. God's victory. And the psalmist describes the instrument of God's deliverance. How did God do those wonderful things? We didn't cooperate with anybody. He did wonderful things. It was His right arm, His right hand, His holy arm. They accomplished the victory. The verb that's used here, have gained the victory, is the same word for salvation, which is the theme. He's singing, believers are singing about the salvation of God. So here it is in verse 1. His right hand and arm have gained the victory, or saving victory. Verse 2, the Lord has made known His salvation. In the end of verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. These are believers singing about the Lord's salvation. And here's how He gains that salvation. 
he brings it about by his right, his right hand. Now, when somebody references the, the right hand, it, it implies uh, might and strength. The right hand is usually a person's more dominant one or more powerful one. I'm sorry if you're left-handed, but, but commonly the right hand is, is, is the more dominant hand. And his arm is referencing God's might. And the psalmist qualifies it even further by saying his holy arm, meaning no human arm, it's a supernatural one that's doing this. So the second thing that we, we should praise God for is the fact that we haven't delivered ourselves. Uh, he accomplished it on his own. It was, it was by his power and his holy might. And that's what Israel's confessing here. One commentator said, when, is, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea, what did Moses tell them? Turn around and fight the Egyptians and the Lord will, will help you. That's not what he said. Exodus 14, 3. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall see again no more forever. That's what they did. They stood still, and God delivered them. What did Israel contribute to the parting of the Red Sea? Absolutely nothing. And what did you contribute to your salvation? Absolutely nothing. It was accomplished by His right hand, His holy arm. They've accomplished the victory. And that's something to praise God for. And so we will do that. We will praise God for His salvation. Believers are singing here. They're singing about God's wonderful things. They're singing about His victory that that He gained, and they're singing about God's salvation. Verse 2, the Lord has made known His salvation, or has made His salvation known. And that's the reason to sing, isn't it? That God saved you, not because you were good or deserved it, because He is good and gracious. Another hymn we sing, I heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, spread the tidings all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And the psalmist says that, that not only does He save, but he, but he makes it known. You don't have to guess who's doing the saving. God does it. Ligon Duncan said, what's the message of the Exodus? Was the problem that Egypt was sinful and Israel was righteous and poor Israel was just being oppressed by mean, old, bad, sinful Egyptians? I mean, is that the message? No. The Israelites tried to worship other gods even as God was saving them. I mean, even after God delivered them, the first thing that they did was worship other gods. He said God in saving the Israelites didn't show that if you're good, you get saved, and if you're bad, you get condemned. He showed that if you're going to get saved, it's not because you're good, it's because I'm good, God says. It's because I'm gracious and merciful. And sovereign grace is a reason to sing to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, Brethren, to say that we save ourselves is an utter absurdity. I mean, we are called in Scripture a temple, a holy temple in the Lord. But shall anyone assert that these stones of the edifice were their own architect? 
Shall it be said that the stones of a building, the building in which we are now assembled, cut themselves into their present shape and then spontaneously came together and piled this spacious edifice? Shall it also be said that those who are redeemed redeem themselves? That slaves of Satan break their, their own fetters? That Shall it be asserted that those who were once dead, have spiritually quickened themselves? I mean, can the dead make themselves alive? Who shall assert that Lazarus, rotting in the grave, have come forth of himself? No. Spurgeon said, He hath trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. And the redemption of his people shall give glory unto himself alone. And so the psalmist says, O glory to God, He has saved me. Has He saved you? Do you know that the Lord has saved you beyond a shadow of a doubt? And if so, you have a reason to sing this morning. And if not, why not give your heart a song to sing this morning? Because the way that you'll come will be through the blood, exactly the same way that I come or anybody else. And the Bible says the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents. And this salvation that God provides is displayed in His righteousness before all. Look at verse 2 again. So we sing because of His wonderful deeds. We sing because He brings the victory. What He brings is salvation. And He's revealed His righteousness in that in the sight of all the nations. We sing because of God's righteousness. Now what does that mean? We sing because of God's righteousness. Well, it means that God proves that He is right. And He does that even in salvation. He does that before, before all. I mean, the purpose of the cross, why that's public, is for God to prove His righteousness, His rightness, that He's right to judge. As Romans says, it, it's public display so that God would, would be proven both to be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus Christ. He's just because of, of He's holy, and sin demands a punishment, and here God is pouring out that wrath. But He's also the justifier. You can have that righteousness through Christ alone. And God puts that on public display. Notice it says here, though, that it's in the sight of all the nations. That's not Israel, that's the Gentiles. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the, of the nations. It's before the Gentiles, but Israel is rejoicing over that, that God's righteousness is, is publicly displayed. And that's done in many ways. Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles. And there are many men and women in the Bible who claim to be right, only for God to prove them wrong. <laughs> Pharaoh mocked the God of Moses, only for God to publicly prove himself right and righteous. Unbelieving Israel mocked God's prophets before Babylon came to, to punish them. Belshazzar mocked God and he died in front of, of everyone. And people mock God today. And just like all the other times before, there will be one day when that mocking will stop because God will prove He was right all along and He'll do that when He comes. You can be sure of this. God may be mocked in the sowing, but He'll not be mocked in the reaping. When the reaping comes, all mouths will be stopped, and the Lord will be proven to be right. That's what happens at the great white throne judgment. That's why it's public. That's why everyone is there. 
And the books will be opened to give evidence of God's righteous judgment. And when he does it, it will be public for all to see. God's righteousness will prevail, and that is a reason to sing. But until that moment gets here, and even in the midst of the mocking, God has not forgotten to be faithful to his people. Look, if you would, at verse 3. Reasons to sing. Verse 3, he has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. To the house of Israel, specific here. The psalmist says, God does not forget his promises. He remains true to his word. What did we sing about last week in Psalm 74? It was dark, it was desolate. The the psalm even ends with no resolution. But 600 years later, there was a man in the temple named Simeon who was the fulfillment of God's promise. God may delay his promises, the fulfillment of his promises, but they will come to pass. And you know what the Bible says, why the Lord is delaying, why he's delaying that that judgment? Because he's long-suffering and he doesn't wish men to perish, but he wishes them to repent. You remember what God promised Abraham long before Moses? That's what they're singing about here. God promised Abraham that, that he would receive a promised son, that they would have promised land, and that he would be a promised blessing to all the earth. And Well, the son came. That's what we're celebrating right now. But the rest of the promises have yet to be fulfilled. The land promise is not fulfilled. The full blessing of Israel is not fulfilled. But it will be. It's exactly what Romans 11 is talking about. Don't think that God will be unfaithful to His covenant promises. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that the partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's us. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Israel doesn't get an automatic pass into heaven. If you, come to, if you come to heaven, you get into heaven, you're coming through Christ. So this is all of Israel that will be saved at the coming of Christ when God takes away their sins. When they look upon the one whom they pierced and they believe on him. But God will not fail to fulfill that promise. When will that be complete? When will the Abrahamic covenant be fulfilled? When Jesus comes again to reign in the millennial kingdom. The last thing that Jesus tells his disciples is this very promise. He reminds them of this in the answer to their question. They want to know, is it now that the kingdom is coming? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times, when that's going to happen. But you can know this for sure. The Father's fixed it by his own hand. Until that time, you're to be my witnesses until that day comes. Witnesses of what? That God is faithful, that he keeps his promises that he sent Christ and that if you repent and believe, he'll save even you. He'll, be, he'll fulfill those promises. And God will, send, will fulfill his promises in a way where every eye will see it. And so you sing because of that. You sing because God will be revealed. Look at verse 3. 
He remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And the final reason to sing is because all the earth has a display of God's saving nature. Now, this is an Old Testament song that is sung by Israel. And they're singing about things that have already taken place. And Israel says the Gentiles have seen God's marvelous deeds. They've seen His salvation of Israel. And look at what that did in their hearts. Second Chronicles 2, uh, 20, 29. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Do you remember what Rahab said to the spies in Joshua chapter 2? Now before the spies lay down, she came to them on the roof and said unto them, I know that the Lord has given you the land before they ever took it, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. God has displayed His salvation for His people to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there's even a modern day example of that. Dr. Bill Barrick told of a modern example of of when this happened. In in 1967, during the Six-Day War, when the Israeli army was was facing a, a promised extermination by three Arab countries, they were boxed in on every side. The Syrians and the the, uh, the Egyptians and the Jordanians on every side of Israel promised to shove the Jews into the sea. And this was supposed to be the second holocaust that was going to happen. And as the Israel, uh, Israeli troops were fighting on three different fronts, the, the Egyptian front, the troops began to press into the, into the Sinai and they were moving toward the Egyptian line. And, and as they were going through the desert, moving toward, toward the battle... They sang songs of solidarity while, while they marched and while they rode on the tanks. And the Egyptians, hearing them sing off in the distance, thought the Jews were celebrating that they had defeated the other Arab states and that they'd won the war, and so they fled their positions. And they left their boots because it weighed them down in the sand and it was easier to run barefooted. And so when the Israelis came upon the Egyptian positions, all they saw was a pile of boots. Can you imagine what the Israelis thought whenever they came upon those positions expecting bullets and they found empty boots? I can. (laughs) Those who were believers thought, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. They, They know that God delivers. It's public. And because of that they fear. And the Bible says, one day every eye will see the Lord. Matthew 24, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and he, they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heavens to the other. And there will be no battle on that day, only the Lord's victory. And when that happens, when Matthew 24 happens, All the nations will add their voices to this 
song of believers. And here's the second member of the Lord's coming ensemble. It's the orchestra that joyful nations play. Look if you would at verse 4. Remember I told you there's a transition here in verse 4. Notice there's a different player here, singer. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy, sing praises. And there's instruments involved, a lyre or a harp, and trumpets and horns. Verses 1 through 3 is a picture of God's salvation toward Israel. It's a call to worship. But that salvation happens before all the nations in verse 3, which is why nature then, or uh, the earth then joins in in verses 4 through 6. So you start with a choir of wonder-filled believers, and now it picks up an orchestra of joyful nations. Verses 4 through 6, there's an anticipation from God's people, and then there's this recognition by the nations, which causes them to, to, to pick up their instruments and play. Now, this verse doesn't just contain our, our favorite verse to quote when somebody can't sing, right? Well, they just made a joyful noise to the Lord. That's not what this is about. When you pay attention to what's going on here, there's something shocking in this verse. I mean, you can understand why God's covenant people are singing. Because he lists the reasons that God's covenant people are singing. God's delivered them. He's done so publicly. But notice who is shouting or making a joyful noise here. Verse 4. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. It's the nations. This is not a church member noisily yodeling and badly. This is an outsider singing to God. And they shout and they're cheerful. They break out. They resound. They make music. I mean, so... This is, this is the whole ball of wax. I mean, it's strike up the band. This is the orchestra. And, and to shout joyfully or make a joyful noise to the Lord, the reason it's, it's put that way in the King James is because the word means to spontaneously do that. Have you ever been listening to a sermon or a song and then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you just said, Amen! Or there's something that, that just came out of your heart. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't for show. It just happened. That's the idea of this word. And so that's what they're doing. Why would the Gentiles, the nations, spontaneously break out in praise before the Lord? And why would they join God's people? And beyond that, the instruments that are listed here are those regularly used in temple worship. Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord with the harp, with the lyre, and the sound of melody, with trumpets. And the sound of, of a horn, a lyre, trumpets, and a horn. I mean, this is all about the temple. What comes to your mind whenever you think of the temple? It smelled wonderful. It smelled like barbecue and incense. Uh, it, it sounded joyful and festive. Instruments are playing. It, it was lovely to look at. There, were, there was gold and tapestry. It was lively with all kinds of people around. It, it was holy. It, it was... People that were there were ceremonially clean and separated from all unbelievers. No outsiders were allowed in. All were welcome to come God's way, but, but if you won't come God's way, then you're not allowed in. And that will be a blessing of heaven. 
Blessing of the kingdom. There'll be no sin. There'll be no mocking. Only believers worshiping. So why do you have Gentiles here taking up temple instruments, bursting forth with praise for God? How can that be? Well, there's a clue in the instruments. It's a question. Why are they using temple instruments? But the last two instruments that they use give us a clue. Verse 6. With trumpets... And the sound of a horn. Um, you, you've seen uh, Christmas cards with, with angels or trumpeters. There's that big, long trumpet that's, that's silver and slender, and it just has an open, open end. That's, that's what this first word looks like. It's metal, and it was, it was a horn. But the second word was an animal horn. The second word's a shofar. You've seen those too. You've seen Israel blowing them. They were restricted for one use, to gain the people's attention, to celebrate, to announce the arrival of the king. And if that's not clear enough, then it's spelled out in verse 6. Look at the rest of verse 6. With trumpets and sound of horns, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. Why are the nations shouting? They're shouting because the earth realizes their true king and they praise him rather than dismiss him. And they'll break into spontaneous worship and they'll blow the Israelite shofar announcing the king of all the earth has arrived. When will that happen? When Jesus comes again and he comes to reign. It didn't happen the first time. So Isaac Watts declares, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And this is how the earth one day will receive its king. Spontaneous praise and temple worship. Can you think of another call to worship where all the earth is promised a blessing for telling about this day? What does Luke say to the announcement of the angels? The angels said unto them, Fear not. That's what sinners normally do to God. Uh, do toward God. They fear because he's, he has borne his holy arm, they know that he can destroy them. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people, not just the Jews. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. He'll come from the Jews, one who is Christ the Lord. He's Messiah and he's God. Why can there be peace on earth? Because Jesus has come. When will there be peace on earth? When the Prince of Peace comes to, to reign when he comes again. And when he does, all of nature will be liberated from the curse and they will join in the chorus. So after the orchestra that joyful nations play, the third member of the Lord's coming ensemble is an accompaniment that liberated nature provides. You would have verse 7. There's another change. Let the sea roar. And all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord. So you have seas thundering and rivers clapping and mountains resounding. These all refer to sounds of nature, the sounds that nature can make. Have you ever sat by the sea when there's... The tide coming in, you just closed your eyes. 
Or maybe you sat in a hotel room and you, you opened your sliding glass door because you want to listen to the, want to listen to the, the ocean in the background. It, it sounds like rolling thunder as the waves come crashing in. And rivers can sound like clapping hands they, as they tumble over the rocks and the, the, the waves splash up. They, they almost smack together, almost sounds like they're clapping and, and the mountains resound. There's a background noise when you go out and, and you're sitting out in the, in the woods and as the, as the wind blows over the mountains and through the trees, there's an echo, a resounding echo. They do all of this here in this song before, before the Lord, before, before Yahweh. Derek Kidner said, Nature is artless and inarticulate, unlike the praise of, of man. The song of believers has words and it's specific about what God has done, but, but nature praises nonetheless. But it too can be heard already since... The whole earth is full of God's glory. So what's the difference between what nature does now and what's, what's happening or what will happen on this day? I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. I just described to you things that you've heard. You, you've, you've listened to the, the ocean and the, the rivers and the, and the wind blowing across the, the mountains. But all of that's under a curse currently. So there's another noise that creation makes in addition to this praise, it's the noise of groaning. Currently being under the curse, the purpose of all creation is to praise and glorify God. And what you see in this psalm is, a, is the progression of, of how that's going to happen again in, in perfection. Before the fall, the orchestra was in sync. Creation, whether it's man or beast, was in perfect sync. And they were... They were they were playing beautiful music together to the Lord. Adam and Eve and all of creation could sing in perfect harmony. But after the fall, they're severely out of tune. Man fell into sin and doesn't even want to sing to God now. Romans 1 says that we're not even thankful to the Lord. And nature declares the glory of God, but it also groans under a curse because of the fall. And it awaits its deliverance. Romans 8, 19 through 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When the sons of God sing, creation will join in with background music because they've been liberated. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. And here in verses 7 and 8, that hope has become sight even for creation. It's been delivered from the curse. How do we know that? We'll look at verse 9. Before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth, and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I mean, just like verses 1 through 3 gives the reasons, six reasons that God's people sing, verse 9 gives the reason that creation joins in. It's because the Lord has come to exercise authority. He's come to judge, which includes Israel and all the nations and nature itself. I mean, the song brings the choir back together in proper worship, uh, a proper order. There's a call to worship God's people. 
And as they begin their praise and they sing, then all the peoples of the earth join in and then nature rounds it out when the curse is lifted. They'll all sing again in perfect harmony. And all of this will come together in the end when God judges the earth. Which means he'll come and remove the curse. Now why would creation or the nations sing a song of praise whenever God's coming to judge? You wouldn't sing praise if God was coming to judge you unless God had already judged someone else in your place. And now you didn't have to worry about the judgment anymore. Believers sing and long for the coming of Christ to bring righteousness and justice on the earth. And that's going to happen one day. Do you remember how Ecclesiastes ends? What's the end of the matter? When all's been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And God's judgment is not just whenever He, he brings down wrath on, on evil people. It's also when He'll make the crooked straight, when He'll make right what is wrong, uh, when He removes the curse. And that's the reason there's singing going on. And the Psalms are a rehearsal for that day. At God's coming and at His presence... We will sing with all of our hearts. Jews will sing. Saved Jews, saved Gentiles will sing. And all of creation will join in. What song will we sing? Will we sing Psalm 98? We actually won't. Look back at verse 1. We skipped over this on purpose. Oh, sing to the Lord, what? A new song. It says that we'll sing a new song. And did you know that Revelation 5 gives us the words to the new song that we'll sing on this day? And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There are three reasons to sing in this song, not six. We sing because He is worthy. Christ alone is worthy. We sing because He was slain. That's why He's worthy to receive this new song. We sing because we're the purchased people from out of every tribe, tongue, people and and nation and because of all that he'll come and he'll reign over all and until that day we anticipate it and we sing joy to the lord uh, to the world the lord has come and we also sing joy to the lord to the world the lord is come we long for his coming but did you know long before isaac watts penned his words Somebody else could take credit for what he did. Um, I don't know, what, what is it called whenever you, you steal someone's uh, material? Like people today, that was my song. Well, long before Isaac Watts came along, there was somebody else who has a claim on Psalm 98. 
Turn over to Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Do you remember Mary's Magnificat? Long before Isaac watched you, Psalm 98, Mary used Psalm 98 to sing her song. And in verse 46 of Luke 1, here is Mary's song. Here's what she sings. Adam Clark laid out every line in parallel, if you want to look that up. He said this whole psalm is a prophecy of Christ's coming to save the world. What was foretold by, by David, he's assuming David in Psalm 98, is declared accomplished by Mary. So you have the promise in the Old Testament, the fulfillment in the New. Now I'm going to read for you Psalm 98, so you don't have to flip back there. And then I'm going to point out to you Mary's echo of David's voice. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And look at what Mary says in verse 46. My soul doth magnify the Lord. She's singing. Psalm 98. For he has done marvelous or wondrous things. And look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things, wondrous things, for me. Psalm 98. With his own right hand, his holy arm, he has gotten the victory for himself. And look, if you would, at verse 31. He has done mighty deeds, or 51, I should say. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. Psalm 98, the Lord hath made known His salvation, His righteousness. He openly showed. And you see Mary saying here in verse uh, 50, and His mercy is upon generation after generation. It's proven by generation and generation. Psalm 98, He has remembered His mercy and His truth toward the house of Israel. And look at what Mary says in verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants. Here is Mary. She had a psalm on her heart that she composed on her own with the Holy Spirit. And it was based on Psalm 98. So the Israelites singing, Mary, Mary singing. What song will you sing? whenever he comes. Hopefully it's a song of joy and not a funeral dirge. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you'll have no reason to sing on that day. You only have reason to mourn. And there is no reason to sing that song because Christ offers salvation to all full and free. And he's proven that he keeps his promises that He displays His righteousness, and He's done that through Jesus on the cross. God is both just and the justifier of those who come to Him through faith. Why don't you bow your heads? Father, I thank You for the Bible. I thank You for how it's written in many different genres, Show us your, your truth. Reveal who you are from different facets, like different angles on a diamond, all pointing to, to
to the same jewel, Jesus, Him alone. And I thank you this morning, Lord, that we long for the day. We can rejoice that you've come. But, Lord, it's incomplete. Our joy is incomplete until we are with you. And we, we will sing with all of our hearts until that day. And then we'll sing with perfect hearts on that day. Um, joy, for you have come. Lord, we pray that all of heaven and earth would receive their king even now so they don't have to receive him in judgment. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand? Let's sing joy to the world together as we close. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Amen? Hope you have a Merry Christmas this week. Uh, We don't have to turn the sanctuary over immediately, so you can fellowship all you want. Don't forget to come back tonight with the cantata. Um, The only thing that's on the agenda this evening is is music. So after I pray and open up, the children will sing, the choir will sing, and uh, we'll we'll be able to do that um, together, listening to, to our folks. So, Father, we love you. We pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing. I pray, Father, this week, if we are around people, that don't have the joy of Jesus Christ, that you would use us in some way that they might see you and um, desire what we have that's come to us by grace. Help us to be joyful people and tell of the one who brings joy. In Jesus' name, amen.